Church attendance in the U.S. and Europe is declining precipitously. Atheism is growing in popularity. The majority of millennials are questioning the veracity of the Bible, all while church buildings are being shut down due to lack of interest. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul observed similar signs that we see today when he confronted the unknown God. As this lines up with modern-day intellectual and philosophical arguments, rather than cower in appeasement, he engaged the populace and cultures of the day by debating and standing for truth in the synagogues, markets, and downtown places of gatherings. We examine the irrefutable demonstrations in archaeology, history, and the Bible displaying with absolute mathematical certainty that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God. Join us now as we unravel Jesus on Trial, the empirical evidence. I am Mark Russick and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to the Russick Outlook. Thank you very much, as always, for joining. Today's topic, Jesus on trial. What do I mean by that? Well, my intent and hope here is that I can address some of the concerns, questions, uh, misnomers, misinformation that may be out there concerning the veracity and the validity of Scripture, the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the true living Son of God, uh, I, I believe I'll be able to present some information here that you may not have considered, may not be aware of. I'm sure at some point uh, some of this information will be new to you. And my hope is to address a lot of these concerns for people who may be sitting on the fence, not really sure uh, whether they believe in God or not, uh, whether they should believe in Jesus, who is this Jesus. So my hope here is to approach it a little bit differently. I'm going to be addressing uh, some, some things from a historical perspective, uh, archaeological perspective, as well as the written Word of God and why we should trust the Word of God. Uh, so that, that is the hope. So if, if any of you are, are fall in that category, or perhaps there are those who are listening who are believers in Jesus, and I know for a fact that many, many, and probably most of you are, uh, so the, the expectation from my end for you is that there will be information that you can glean from, you can grow in, in and it may be able to help you uh, share this with somebody within your, within your sphere of influence, somebody who you may be praying for and believing God for, and, and maybe in that situation where they're just not sure. So that, that is the, that's the hope, that's the aim, that's the mission, because as always, I, I've stated it consistently, my, my uh, overarching objective is always to get at the heart of truth. What is the truth? Because there is no substitute for the truth. And I believe inherently that everybody in their heart really wants to know it, no matter if it, if it shakes their inner core, if it shakes uh, prior beliefs. As long as it's true, you know where you can go from there. So on that note, um, if, if you like information like this, if you appreciate this type of approach, I would ask you if you could please right now hit the like and the subscribe button that's appearing on your screen uh, or it's coming across the screen now, but you know whatever platform you're on, be it YouTube or any of the podcast platforms, again, it just helps us get the information out there. It's very much appreciated. Uh, and share the information. If there's something in here that you like, share it on social media. We're on all the social media platforms. Um, and, and as well, I would ask that if you could, Jump on the RussickOutlook.com, sign up for our email list. We notify you 
of uh, new presentations that are coming up and just new developments. And as I've said recently, we are having some uh, live Zoom gatherings if, if you're interested in that. But let's get to this. So let me begin first. If you're looking at this on video, um, I want to describe what this is and why, how this came about. Uh, and, and if you're a podcast listener, I'll describe it to you that it's a courtroom scene where the cross is, is on the witness stand with a microphone in front of it. We're in a courtroom. There is a judge, there is a prosecuting attorney, and he's got a canvas with what's uh, labeled the evidence, Exhibit A, Exhibit B. There's a host uh, of different individuals of all different backgrounds in the jury, as well as uh, people in, in the courtroom audience. And then you can't really see it all here in the lower left, that that woman there is the courtroom stenographer. So this was a vision that I had several years back because I believe that all questions concerning Jesus, concerning the Bible, are valid. That if if people have these uh, open-ended questions, no matter where they come from, we should be able, we being the Christians or the church, should be able to address them um, with, with confidence that we know that we can stand upon the Word of God. So that being said, I always had this uh, this vision in, in my mind, and I shared it with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Faith McCallion. And uh, long story short, I explained this to her. She's a wonderful artist and uh, worship leader. Um, she actually said to me that one of her uh, thoughts growing up or aspirations was to become a courtroom artist, and I knew she was she was an artist. I had seen her paint uh, some things before in the past at, a, at some church services. So I had asked her, you know, what do you think about this? And she came up with the concept and the idea and, and ran with it. So I, um, I actually commissioned her. This painting is hanging up in my office, and, and, and I love it. It's, it's, you know, it's just something very, very special to me. Um, for those of you who are, are interested, let me just say real quick, Faith Christine is her name now. FaithMcCallion.com, F-A-I-T-H-M-C-C-A-L-L-I-O-N.com. If you're interested in her paintings or her work or maybe commissioning her or, or, or touching base and, and looking into the things that she's doing, I, I strongly advise uh, and recommend her. Um, but at any rate, that's, that's kind of the history and the background of this. And, and that's really the theme of what this is. I'm putting Jesus on trial. Why should we believe Jesus? Why should we believe the Word of God? So part of my motivation right now in doing this is church attendance uh, throughout the last 15 to 20 years is, is really declining precipitously. Um, but I, I would say not only athe atheism is growing, but also just people who may be agnostic or just, uh, you know, they, they would say they believe in God or a higher power or, you know, something along those lines, but it doesn't really mean a lot to them in the grand scheme of things. I'm giving you some graphs here and some statistics here about how the adults identifying as Christians are, are, are declining in America. I'm citing America. If you're listening to me from another country, chances are it's the same in your country. We're seeing this throughout the world a lot in, in Europe. For those who could be in different countries in Latin America, I, I know the uh, the church is growing there, and believe it or not, some of the fastest growing churches are some of the most oppressed churches. Uh, China, the underground church there, Iran, uh, and believe it or not, the the church in Afghanistan uh, is 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 growing. And I, and I know that sounds crazy as I sit here in October of 2021, but um, 
that there, there's some just tremendous, tremendous work that that's going on uh, over in Afghanistan and a lot of persecuted countries where the actually the church is growing. So I'm citing America here. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm pointing out that not only is the non-religious or the atheism, uh, atheist growing in, in population and, and in popularity, um, but, but also what, what is a concern, I, I would believe, and I, you know, I think you can tie this in. If you see the graph on the lower left-hand side, the millennials are really starting to decline. That would be those born between 1981 and 1996. And, you know, I would cite that some of the reasons for this could be what well, I, I this is my opinion. I believe it is because of the things that are happening in our culture, our education, the family unit. I believe in a lot of instances the, the church compromises the word of God so it can appease people to draw them in. And then there's division. There's division in our culture. There's division uh, in our politics. No, you know, no, no surprise there. But there's division in the churches and, you know. Um, the different denominations and, and whatnot. And, and I, I would say it's a combination of all those things and, you know, behind it all, and, and I'll get into it a little bit, but I believe that, you know, there is good and evil in the world, and I believe evil uh, is, be, is behind a lot of this, and I'll, I'll share a little bit about that in, in, in this presentation. The other concerning thing to me is there was recently a Pew Forum study of of the church and believers, and 87% of them said that they believe in God. And these are the numbers that kind of really throw me. But only 74% believe in heaven, and 59% believe in hell. So that alone points to me that there's a problem in the church. And and I'm not saying any denomination in particular, or whether you're non-denominational or whatever. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of painting a little bit of a broad stroke here. But I don't know how you believe in God and don't believe in heaven or hell. Uh, so that that alone, that, 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 that's, you know, some alarming statistics to me. So that's part of my, um, my, my, my reason for addressing this and, and getting into this topic. And then as I, I, as I talked about, I, I'm, I'm really somewhat troubled, to be honest with you, uh, those who casually throw around um, that God does not exist, there is no God, and, and you know, again, if you're following me on video, I'm showing you that. But here's some statistics. I, if you follow me on video with the highlight, 65% of American dis adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about religion. It's down 12 percentage points in just the past decade. That's a lot. Uh, meanwhile, the religiously unaffili unaffiliated share of the population who considers themselves atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular now stands at 26%, uh, which is a rise of 9% since 2009. And then you also have self-described atheists now account for 4% of American adults in this country. Uh, it is up 2% since 2009. Agnostics make up 5% of the U.S. adults, that's up 3% from a decade ago, and 17% of Americans now describe their religion as nothing in particular, which is up 12%. Members of non-Christian religions also have grown modestly as a share of the adult population. So clearly there's something going on in the air, something's in the water, if you will. Uh, so again, this is my hope. You know, if you are are in that category of 
you're not sure, you're an atheist, you're agnostic, I would like to speak to you in, in the sense of uh, uh, getting to some, some things that I, I would hope that you would consider. So let me also just state up front some of my motivation and some of the things that I cite for doing the things and presenting the things I'm about to uh, comes from Acts 17 and the example of the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is where Paul is, is waiting in Athens, Greece, uh, and it says here in verse 16 that his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry. So if you're a non-believer and if you're ascribing to some of the things that are going on around the world today, I would consider that to be idolatry. Uh, so this is part of, again, my motivation and just having a conversation with you and presenting information. But it goes on to say, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, with the devout persons, in the market daily with, uh, with them that met with him. So he was engaging the culture. He was engaging the populace. He was talking to the Jews. He was talking to uh, the, the, the followers of, you'll see here in a second, the unknown God and others of that day. It was a great uh, conglomeration of different cultures and, and philosophies. Uh, verse 18, it says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics, they encountered him. They, they say, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seems to be set forth of strange gods because he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. Later it goes on in verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you too are superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God whom therefore you ignorantly worship him and declare unto you. So I would say those who believe in God and, and you know, uh, but they're not sure who he is, that would be an unknown God. Um, and it goes on in verse 30, jumping down at the bottom here. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he ordained, wherefore he has given assurance to all men that he raised him from the dead. Obviously talking about Jesus, and this far into Acts, this is after the resurrection. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So again, he's getting some to believe, some to be curious, to listen to more, and then others mocked him. And I would say that, again, is indicative of what we see not only in the world today, but probably throughout history. Uh, and, and then, you know, it says, Paul, so then Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him, and they believed him, which was Dionysus and Aropakite. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So in other words, he engaged the culture. He went to the markets. He went to the streets. He went to the synagogue. He proclaimed the gospel. He shared information. He talked to them. Some, uh, he was able to to tickle their ear in the sense of at least get their attention. And then others w went on to become great believers. Uh, and then still others mocked. And, and I'm sure that, you know, if you know, there could be some here who may listen to what I have to say and may, may mock it, and that's fine. Uh, but others may say, okay, well, you know what? Maybe I should look a little bit more into this. And, and this is where I'm going to start to present the information. So I, 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 I hope you don't mind, but I needed to kind of set this up why I'm doing this. So let's get into it. Here, the courtroom scene, the evidence. Let's look at the evidence for the trial of Jesus Christ. 
First of all, the, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by divine inspiration of God. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So right away, scripture is telling us that everything written in this supposed outdated and antiquated book is divinely inspired. That, that's a pretty bold statement. And it also goes on to say in John 1.1 1, 1, that when the Word of God became flesh, that the Word of God and God is synonymous with one another. And when it says it became flesh, it means Jesus Christ. When he came into this world and became flesh, that that was the living Word of God manifested. So those two statements alone are incredibly bold. And for those of you who, are, who do not believe in God, I say these should be poured over uh, with thorough investigations, so this is my intent to do this here. First, I would say, how do we get the Old Testament? How do we how do we arrive at this book that 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 we're looking at and that I am defending and and, and others? So I'm showing you the books how they're broken down on the left in terms of the Pentateuch or the Law, uh, poetry, history, major prophets, minor prophets. So they were canonized. And what, is that? what do I mean by that? Canon means a measuring rod or a rule. So this was a group of 120 people that gathered all of this information from the, all different books. Um, and they compiled them. So in other words, they, they had a, a test that some, some would pass, some would not pass. And Josephus, who is a very popular and, and valid uh, or claimed to be a, uh, well, he is in a historical sense. He's, he's considered to be a highly credible historian. He mentions 22 books. When you look at the first and second, such as first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, it comes out to 39 books, which is what we have today. Uh, how do you canonize a book? It demands it to be divinely inspired. In other words, was it written by a prophet or a spokesman of God? Can it, can it be traced back to the time as well as to the place of the, of the writer? And it's also worthwhile to note here that Jesus and the apostles and the disciples of Jesus quoted in the New Testament, the Old Testament, over 600 times. So when they were preaching and ministering the Word of God and referring to Scripture, they were referring to the Old Testament. Obviously, there was no New Testament in the time of Jesus. Uh, then you had the Septuagint, which translated this into Greek. Uh, I, I give you some little background on this, but the work began around 280 BC and was completed about 100 years later. Uh, so this proves that the Old Testament was canonized at this time. It's important when we compare our modern-day Bibles to the Hebrew or the Greek translations, there are very, very few differences, which suggests, suggests that the Bible has been accurately preserved uh, far better than any other ancient book at all. No matter what book you want to cite, this has been um, uh, treated with a high degree of, of, of accuracy and transparency. How do I also know that? Well, glad you asked. I'm going to take you to the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think this is one of the most amazing discoveries. And for those doubters, the reason I'm, I'm citing this is that this was the discovery of all of the Old Testament books with the uh, exception of the book of Esther. It was found in, in caves, in the Qumran caves in, in Israel uh, by the what's called the Essenes. Long story short, you can look all of this information up. This has been validated from an archaeological standpoint, historical standpoint, 
scientific analysis of the documents and the dating methods. Uh, it, it, they, they did uh, uh, different trans, trans, transcript, transcriptions, I'm sorry, carbon-14 dating. So this was treated as a archaeological discovery, not a Jewish discovery, not a Christian discovery, not a God discovery, as an archaeological discovery. These manuscripts were translated and they were considered to be within 98% accuracy of what we have today. So that alone means what was written back thousands of years ago, we know that it has that high degree of accuracy of what we are looking at today. Uh, Additional books are Enoch, Jasher, Jubilee, which are other books mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and 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 there's others as well. Um, but the reason I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on this is you can date this even conservatively to at least 100 years before the birth of Jesus. These Old Testament books, which are filled with prophecies about Jesus Christ, were clearly written and authenticated centuries before his birth. And I, I really want you to, to, to take that into consideration. Because the things that I'm going to describe are beyond any type of mathematical analysis or, or, or shaking away. That, and, and, I'll sh- and I'll show you this. So there's a collection in here of 972 texts of the Hebrew Bible and extra uh, biblical documents. And they were kind of collated, put together between 1947 and 1956. Incidentally, the way they were discovered was a Bedouin tribe, a young boy, threw a rock in a cave to get some of his, either his goat or his sheep trying to, you know, that had written, uh, uh, I don't know, escaped or, or went into a cave and he heard the crack of pottery. And he went in and these documents, these Old Testament documents and others were so well preserved and they were in these clay pots and throughout these different caves um, uh, in, in this part of Israel. Um, they include the oldest known surviving copies of biblical and extra-biblical documents. They preserve the evidence of great diversity in the late Second Temple uh, uh, of, of Judaism. They are written also in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek, mostly on parchment, but some were written on papyrus. So here, you know, I, I can't stress this enough, that the Old Testament was clearly written, preserved, well, well, well before the birth of Jesus Christ. And why do I, why do I want to stay on that? Because so much of what we're talking about with Jesus on trial are prophecies and predictions of what he is to come and the things that he'll do. And I'll get into that very, very shortly. But again, I think that the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls to anybody who wants intellectual satisfaction up to the validity and the veracity of Christ and Scripture you need to start with, or I would suggest that you start with, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and why this is so important. So let's flip to the New Testament because we're going to you know, get into that and more so as we get into uh, the resurrection. But from the start of the early church, they used the Old Testament as, as the authority. And I, you know, I, I explained that earlier. But as the New Testament books were completed, they were given the same respects as the prophets and Moses. So they started to incorporate the new books right away. 1 Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul quotes from Luke 10.7, citing this scripture. He evidently regarded Luke's gospel as scripture before he wrote 2 Timothy 3.16. So again, these people knew of one another. They, they knew of their writings. 
In 2 Peter 3.12, he placed his and other apostles' writings on par with the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because they knew Jesus. They saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They, they broke bread with Jesus. Um, and, and Paul later on, obviously, had that experience where he saw the resurrected Messiah. Um, so they, again, they all knew of one another. They shared this information. But we also know that this was com- the New Testament was completed by the second century. We know the authenticity of the New Testament can be traced to within 100 years or less of the apostles. So that's important. So if somebody wrote a book uh, and, and, you know, they wrote that book, let's say I'm in 2021 right now, and they wrote that book in 1915 or 1920, we know with a high degree uh, of confidence that that book is valid. Uh, The book of Revelation, we know, was written on the island of Patmos in A.D. 95, and it was immediately given uh, acceptance into the library of God. Uh, The texts of the canonicity were very much the same as the Old Testament. Was it inspired? Did they they know the writers? Uh, Was this written by an apostle or a close associate? Does it agree with the doctrine of the Lord and the apostles? Does it line up with with what was written in the Old Testament? Is it genuine in regard to the facts, the dates, the writings, the authors? Was it accepted in the early church? So the 27 New Testament books were u- that we use today were officially ratified by the Council of Carthage in A.D. 397, which had uh, only recognized the books that had already been used for the 300 years prior. And then I break these down here. I show you uh, the, the four books of the gospel and the book of Acts. And I would say the book of Acts is really where the New Testament begins because that is the resurrection of Jesus. So that's how we got the New Testament. So Old Testament, we know how we got it. And, I, and I'm going to really emphasize uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now we know how we got the New Testament. The Bible, believe it or not, is the number one selling book of all time. Every year, year in and year out. They took it off the bestsellers list because it's always there. It is constantly, it's around the world. I'm showing you pictures here of Jewish soldiers before they go into battle. They're praying. They have this on their heart. Uh, the, the, the underground church in China and other, ground, uh, other churches, they cling to the importance and the relevance of this book. The flip side of this book is you can go to Islamic countries, communist countries. They burn it. They ban it. They, it, it, it this is the most... A highly volatile book in all of the world. So, you know, why is this book drawn so much attention? No other book has been loved or hated by as many. It's been adored. It's been read by billions of people over the centuries. And I would say billions of people are reading it potentially every year, easily making this the best-selling book of all time. What is even more remarkable is how it stood the test of time. It survived persecution. They tried to burn it. They tried to ban it. They tried to outlaw it. The Roman Empire, the, the, the modern-day communists, the Islamic countries, the, no other book has been scrutinized or, or, or so vilified. What book on religion, philosophy, psychology, classical, modern times has evoked such venom and skepticism, such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet? Yet, it remains loved, studied, read by hundreds of millions of people. I would say, you know, the church is supposed to be somewhere in the two point. 8 billion or 2.5 billion range. Uh, So that's why I say probably over a billion people read it today. So this is my overarching question to you, and I'm going to present more evidence, but I want you to think about this. 
The Bible was written over a 1,500-year span that includes 66 books written by more than 40 authors of every walk of life. They include kings, military leaders, peasants, physicians, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, shepherds. Think of the individuals that I'm talking about. Moses was a political leader and a judge. David was a king, a poet, a musician, a warrior. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a pagan king. Daniel was a prime minister. Solomon, he was a king, a philosopher. Luke, and I'm going to talk about him shortly, uh, he was a physician as well as a well-noted historian. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi. Mark was Peter's secretary. But from Genesis through Revelation, these subjects with all these different books, all these different people, they, they emitted this incredible har uh, degree of harmony that maintains one single unfolding theme from Genesis to Revelation. It is God's redemption of human beings. The paradise that was lost in Genesis becomes the paradise regained in Revelation. The leading character, character throughout claims to be the one true living God made known by through Jesus Christ himself. From Genesis to Revelation, it points to Jesus. How can that possibly be? How can you get people over such a large period of time all these different authors who did not know one another. Some in the Old Testament knew of, of each other. I'll, I'll point out, I think Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel pop out at me, and obviously Paul knew Peter and some of the other apostles. But they didn't know of, for the most part, I'll say 97, 98% didn't know of each other's writings. So how can you explain that? It's it's not conceivable. Again, that defies any type of uh, of odds. Here's some other things that, that, that just you can't explain. It, it, it runs through the, uh, the emotions and the moods through the entire human spectrum. Peaks of joy, valleys of sorrow, despair, times of certainty, conviction. Yet others, there's times of confusion, there's doubt. It's written in a variety of literary styles, from poetry to historical narrative. There's song, there's romance, there's personal correspondence. Memoir, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, allegory. How do you explain all of this? And it does not shy away from volatile or controversial subjects, which is why a lot of people, uh, you know, they, especially in today's cultures, you know, they, they, they take offense to it. Why? Because it, it, it talks about marriage and the importance of marriage, the, 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 the atrocities of divorce, of remarriage, of homosexuality, of adultery, of obedience to authority, uh, of the, the importance of telling the truth and not lying, character development, parenting. It reveals the true nature and revelation to God. So all of these things take into account. Uh, but the, the, it's the symmetry of the books that just consistently blows me away. You know, like I said, all these authors, all these different books, uh, you know, from all these different people, all these different backgrounds, how can, they, how can you do that? So consider all of those things. And now let me just go through a little bit more. I'm going to give you even more information. Historical prophecy. So a prophecy obviously depicts something that is yet to come. There are over a thousand of them. To date, there have been roughly 668 have been fulfilled. Not one prophecy has been proven to be false. I'm going to give you one example that you can go back to historical records and cite. In about 17, I'm sorry, this is about the decree of Cyrus. 
And we're going to be talking about this decree uh, briefly in a second here. But in about 700 BC, Isaiah named Cyrus as the king who will allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. At this time, there was no King Cyrus, and the temple in Jerusalem was standing. The Jewish people were flourishing, I'll say. But more than 100 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem. He pillages it. He destroys Jerusalem. He takes the people back into captivity, uh, back to Babylon. Um, the, the Jewish people there, they were either killed or they were captured. In roughly 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. Shortly thereafter, a Persian king named Cyrus issues a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. This decree is confirmed by secular archaeology in the form of a stone cylinder that details many events of Cyrus's reign, including the decree to rebuild the temple. So to recap, Isaiah predicts a man named Cyrus, who was not even born and wouldn't be born for a hundred years, he would give a decree to rebuild a city and a temple that was already built, and the temple was already there, but yet it was standing and fully active at the time, but yet historical records bear this out as well as the Bible. I cited about Luke. Luke, the reason I wanted to, let me just say this, Luke 1, 3 through 4. With this in mind, since this is Luke, since I must have, uh, I, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of things that have been taught. So Luke is taking great pride in in the details and the accuracy of what he's writing. Now, there are many, many different um, uh, historians and archaeologists, former atheists, former agnostics, who set out to disprove the gospel and, and there's so many today, you, you know, you can do that. But I'm citing the historians and the archaeologists here because they went after Luke. Because Luke wrote such incredible details, they said, we're going to go and, and disprove it. So what happens is Sir William Ramsey, who, who uh, was a very, very famous um, historian, he was an archaeologist, he, he wound up coming to Christianity as a result of attempting to refute Luke's uh, um, uh, validity here. So he writes in his book uh, that he says, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements facts and trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed among the greatest historians. Uh, historian A.N. Sherwin, he writes, in all, Luke names 39 countries, 54 cities, Nine islands, all without error. That you can take from the Baker Encyclopedia of Apologetics. Finally, there's John uh, McRae. He was a professor of New Testament and archaeology. For Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject history, I should say, for those of you who don't know, uh, it is believed that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Um, any attempt to reject, to reject historicity must now appear absurd. The general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is a very accurate historian. He's erudite. He's eloquent. His Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man, and archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. So again, outside sources, some attempting to, to 
take him down. And in the end, they had to concede that everything that he wrote was historically and archaeologically accurate. So now I'd like to go to the prophecies of the coming Messiah. So these are prophecies about Jesus. We went to, with I feel, you know, great length telling you how we got the Old Testament and how we can uh, point to them because of the uh, Dead Sea Scroll discoveries. So we find out that he would be born of a, uh, well, let me just say this, Luke, who we just mentioned, he writes in 2444 that Jesus' own words, he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. The law of Moses, for those of you who don't know, is the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms. So Jesus himself is saying his life, his depiction of what his mission is in, in, in this world has been preordained and prewritten in the Old Testament, and he's saying that he must fulfill it. It says he must be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. And I'm, I'm going to cite all of, this, all of the uh, 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 scriptures here. If you're following me on video, if you're listening on podcast, you can catch them all. I'm not going to go through them or read them all, but I will cite here. He was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, validated in Matthew and Luke. He would be heralded by a messenger of the Lord, according to John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, validated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He would perform miracles according to Isaiah 35. We can find this in Matthew 9:35 and throughout all of the Gospels. He's performing miracles. He would preach good news in Isaiah, validated in Luke 4. He would present himself as a king 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Why do I say such a bizarre number? Well, it's not a bizarre number. It's a number. It's a very specific number. And I'm going to show you exactly how incredibly detailed and accurate the Bible is. Remember those numbers. I'm citing here Daniel 9.25. This was validated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey or a colt. Zechariah 9.9, validated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He would die a humiliating and painful death. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, validated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, 6. Accounts of the crucifixion with those uh, uh, details in Matthew 27, Mark, Luke, and John. His executioners would cast lots for his building, uh, his clothing, I'm sorry. Psalm 22, we find that in John 19. None of his bones would be broken in his execution. Psalm 34, we find that in John 19. His side would be pierced, Zechariah 12. John 19 bears this out. He would die with the wicked and be buried in a rich man's tomb. Prophesied in Isaiah 53, validated in Matthew 27. There is a collection of over 300 predictions about the Messiah in the Jewish scriptures about Jesus and who he is to come. These predictions, they were written by multiple authors, numerous books, well over a thousand years before before, uh, Jesus came uh, came to be. So again, and you know, we, I'm going to cite again, you know, the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, all these things 
we're, we're, <laughs> everything I'm describing here defies any type of mathematical odds. But yet I'm going to get in. I'm going to show you a little bit more. I'm winding this down. So that 173,000-day marker I, I want to talk about here. So if you're following me on video, I'm giving you a little bit of a timeline from where Cyrus the Great, uh, he's part of the Medo-Persian Empire, um, and then he came into uh, 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 being in 539 B.C. So then in March 14th, 445 B.C., uh, the decree of Xerxes he issues this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So I'm going to read from you. Um, well, let me let me let me go on. What I'm what I'm getting at here is Matthew. I'm sorry, Daniel nine twenty four through twenty five describes sixty nine weeks of years, which are forty hundred eighty three years, which are one hundred seventy three thousand eight hundred eighty days. This is how I came up with this number, not I came up with it's the Lord. It says that from the decree of this issue, this time span would 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 uh, go forth until the Messiah would enter the city of Jerusalem. So he's saying in this point here, there would be 483 years and then the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. Through historical records outside of the Bible, we can validate that this decree was issued on March 14th, 445 B.C., and we know that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on the colt, just as what was prophesied on April 6th, 32 A.D. This is empirical evidence. It is measurable. It is provable. So let me read the scripture. Uh, this is Daniel 9, 24 through 25. This is the, uh, the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This is to the Jewish people and to the uh, city of Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. So notice that these seventy weeks of years, again, following me top left, the highlight, is broken down into three categories. First, there's seven weeks of years. Seven times seven uh, is um, 49, I'm sorry. Then there's the sixty-two weeks of years. Then when you combine the 62 with the 7, you get the 69 weeks of years, and that's, again, those 173,000 days. So we know that that decree was issued from Nehemiah, we can go 21 verses 1 through 8. The way that this is broken down, and I'm going to give you some a book that you can go and, and, and look this up for yourself if, if you wanted to, um, but again, I was the, the way this is broken down is the year is according to the Jewish calendar, which is 360 days. All uh, calendars at that time, I, I believe including the Egyptian calendar, was 360 days. And that's the Jewish calendar as it stands today. So it's not the 365. So if you go from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., that's 173,000 
740 days. If you go from March 14th to April 6th, that's another 24. If you take into account all of the leap years between 445 and 32, that's 116, which brings you to exactly 173,880 days. So how can you possibly say that the Bible is inaccurate? You, you can't. I mean, this again, I'm, I'm just, I'm pointing out things that you can, you can, you can find well outside the Bible in archaeology and science and, 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 and other areas in history. So how do we know this? Let me just continue. Uh, the book that I was referring to is is written by Sir Robert Anderson. It's The Coming Prince. It was written, I believe, he was around, I'm, I'm not sure of the publishing date. He was late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, he was an investigator with Scotland Yards. and But at any rate, he wrote this book and he was able to do the research for it. So we know that King Xerxes ascended to the throne in 465 BC, Cyclopedia Britannica. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, Nehemiah 2.1, and I say just look through 2.1 through 8. So we know that the king's reign begins on the first month of Nisan. March 14th is the first day of Nisan. It is also the day that the decrees are issued for the year. March 14th, 445, issues the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So I want to go back to these seven weeks of years because there's something pretty significant here as well. So Daniel 9.26, I'm showing you the amplified version. Then after the 62 weeks of years, the anointed one will be cut off and denied his messianic kingdom and have nothing. Uh, And the people of of the other prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war. Desolations are determined. So prior to, that's that last seven weeks that, uh, is yet to come. That's the tribulation. But what I want to get to is that first uh, seven times seven, the, 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 the 49 years. Why is that significant? Because I would say that if Jesus is pointing out uh, seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years equaling 69 weeks of years, all of those numbers are significant. Now, we've shown how if you add the 62 and the seven, how we got up to that. But what about the seven? Why is that special? Why is that highlighted? Well, what happened in those 49 years? From the year of the decree, if you add 49 years, that's 396 B.C. 396 B.C. happens to be the the year that the city of Jerusalem was completed as the Old Testament canon. That's the end. From here until the John the Baptist, there was no other prophet after this. God established his people in his land, his city, his temple. It was established his words. God had affirmed his people, his city, and his word. So the complete restoration from the issuing of the decree to the completion of Jerusalem was 49 years or seven weeks of years. That's why that's so important. Then how do we know about April 6th that Jesus entered into the city as as king? We can cite this from Luke 3, 1 to 23. Remember Luke. Remember how uh, uh, valid and, 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 and how trustworthy his scriptures are. So Tiberius Caesar came into the throne at 14 AD. In 29 AD, John, uh, Jesus was baptized by John in the 15th year of Caesar's rule. 
We know that Jesus was around 30 years old at the time he was baptized, Luke 3.23. His ministry lasted three years. That brings us to 32 A.D. In 32 A.D., the Passover was on the 10th of April, which is the 14th day of Nisan, according to Jewish records. Jesus entered Jerusalem four days before Passover. We know this because it's recorded in uh, John 11:55 and 12:1 through 3. So that's how we know the specificity of these dates. And and I would say to you that this is this was laid out for us for us to have confidence in the authorship and the and the holiness and the and the beauty of 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 Jesus and the Lord and and, and everything written in it. We are at a time today where all of these things can be validated. Let me just close with with this one thing, um, and I want to get into something that I that I was able to do. I can't, for the sake of time, I can't get into all of the details of how you come up with this. But in addition to all of this information, we can also cite in Scripture the the dates of May fourteenth, nineteen forty eight, which was the day that Israel became a nation. We know from Scripture that's a very specific date. And we can go by how this was preordained some 2,500 years beforehand. And then on top of it, we can also validate June 7th, 1967, which was the day that Jerusalem was uh, came back into the hands at the end of the Six-Day War to the Jewish people. There, I did a study on this, and I did a broadcast on it. It's called Mathematics by Jesus if you can, look it up. I give you the complete breakdown of how you come across those two dates. It's been in the Bible. Again, these are just more revelations for us to have confidence in the authorship of Jesus, and, and that's, what I w- that's what I would hope you would do. So I, I need to close on something, and you know, I don't want this to be a sour note, but for those who may be watching or listening that don't know the Lord, don't know where they sit, still have doubts, I just want you to think about something about your eternal destination. Inevitably, and I've cited this before, everybody always asks themselves, no matter what you believe in today, is there a God? What happens after I die? Is there life after death? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Well, according to the Word of God, there's no question. I'm going to talk about hell. This is specifically mentioned 32 times and referenced 162 times. Jesus talked about this more than he talked about heaven. It is also called Hades or Sheol, which means the grave or the life after the grave. It is also referenced as Tartarus, which is a place for the fallen angels. Gehenna, 12 times mentioned mostly by Jesus. I believe James was the other one, not 100% sure off the top of my head. Um, it is Gehenna, which is literally translated the Valley of Hinnom, which is a burning garbage dump a 24-7 burning garbage dump, and then the lake of fire, which is your final destination. So by far, the majority of scriptural teaching on hell comes from Jesus himself. So if Jesus thought it was so important to talk about hell, I'm going to do the same for a minute. Jesus taught more on hell than heaven 70 times. His ministry warns of it. This is how Jesus describes hell. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth seven times. What is gnashing of teeth? That's that, like if you, you know, if you have a hammer and you hit your your, your finger while you're hammering something that you, you, you quench it. 
the fire is not quenched. There's a worm that never dies. It's called outer darkness, a place where one is tormented by flames and have passed. You have the memories. You know what your life was in the past, but you're tormented. It is a great gulf fixed between hell and paradise. Those are Jesus's descriptions. Uh, Matthew 10, 28, this is Jesus again. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but rather kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Psalm 9, 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So I, I'm citing the veracity of Scripture, and I'm citing how Jesus thought it was so important to warn you and everybody about hell. I'm going to close with this, and, and let me just say, uh, well, the, the argument that I hear a lot, and, and, and it's unfortunate to me, is good people will get into heaven. And I, and I know this from people incredibly close to me. And it, it grieves me. It grieves my heart. Because if God is truly a God of love, they say he will let good people into heaven. So in other words, if I've lived a good life, then that's good enough for me. So they're judging what God should do and what he should not do. They're playing God. And they're the ones who are saying, you don't have to believe in God. All, all paths lead to God, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, whatever. But consider if God allowed sinners who refuse to repent of their sins that he would have to deny his nature as a just and holy God. Admitting unrepentant sinners into heaven transforms paradise into an annex of hell. If an unrepentant soul were allowed into heaven, his sinfulness would destroy the holiness of heaven. The cleansing of our souls requires the spiritual application of the blood of Jesus in order for our hearts to be prepared to live in a holy heaven. I'm giving you such a broken down version, cliff notes, whatever. I, I don't have the time. I can, you know, get into a lot of this. But let me close with this. John three eighteen through 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God, of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see that today. They love the darkness. They are calling good evil and evil good. Pick up a, a, a headline today on any form of the, you know, your online um, newspapers, magazines, whatever. It, it's, it's growing at such a propensity, it's scary. Um, for everyone, it goes on to say, for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. It's almost like a cockroach. A cockroach hides in darkness, and when you shine the light on it, it they just scatter and they run. That's what sin does. So when you're exposed to the light of Jesus, you either welcome him and, and you surrender your life, and there's freedom in surrender, trust me, but it goes on to say, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So you have that opportunity. You have that choice. I need to close, but let me just say that I'm going to continue this in the next broadcast about the resurrection. 
I'm going to get into the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there is no New Testament. There is no, there is no reason for Jesus unless the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. So I'm going to stop here, then follow up in, in the next broadcast about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. I hope some of this information helped you. Uh, any questions, comments, email me, russickoutlook at gmail. And uh, prayer requests, happy to do so. And, and again, if you're sitting on the fence and you don't know the Lord, ask him into your heart. Go to a Bible-believing church near, near you. Um, and, and if you don't know of one, email me. I'll, I'll do my best to tap into my contacts and, and hopefully point you in the right direction. God bless you. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Russick Outlook. And remember, as always, just my opinion.